You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the uh, voice of the Council on social media at Council of D.C. Um, and I'm thrilled to say we are back with one of our most frequent uh, visitors, Councilmember Robert White uh, at large. Thank you for being back, right. Council. Thanks for having me back. No problem. This is interview nine. You, you and you and the uh, councilmember Nadeau are, uh, are neck and neck. She's doing number ten though uh, oh. next week. So, right. um, but That's... I'm grateful as always for you for you spending time. Uh, the main topic we're going to be talking about today is your new committee role. Uh, but we would be remiss with the week that we've all had to not talk about the criminal code bill. Congress's treatment of it, the president's treatment of it, the fact that we're the lead story on every Sunday news uh, show. Yes. Uh, what What is your take on how we got here, where we are, and and how we get out of it? Look, it, it's a it's a new day for for DC, or at least a day we haven't seen in in a long time. How we got here is is this: the the council passed a a bill to reform a hundred twenty year old criminal code to put it on par with the majority of other states. The mayor opposed the bill, um, mischaracterized the bill substantially. That mischaracterization was latched onto by congressional Republicans who led an effort to overturn the bill, uh, overturning the bill that bill to overturn DC's bill passed the House uh, as it was is sitting waiting for the Senate to vote on it. President Biden last Thursday said, if it comes to my desk, I'm going to sign it. So President Biden has said he's not going to put his neck on the line for the District of Columbia. Uh, A couple dozen Democrats in the House said they're not going to put their neck on the line for home rule in the residents of the District of Columbia. And it looks like several Democrats and all the Republicans in the Senate uh, are going to participate in overturning our bills. And the mayor, unfortunately, did not lobby a, a to protect home rule on this. And uh, I think the the narrative now is that the district has a crazy out of touch crime bill that just is not accurate. Um, and that leaves Democrats not wanting to fight in our corner. So this is a this is a dark day for D.C. It's been over 30 years since the law passed by the council uh, was um, uh, overturned by Congress. The last time it was done, it was on a height act issue, which is uh, federal. You know, there's some federal uh, issues there. Uh, so this is uh, this is a historic point for the district. And I worry that this is an indication of much more to come. So I worry that the the Congress for the next several years is going to do a lot more meddling in the District of Columbia's laws. Yeah, I mean, I I, um, feel like some of this started with President Trump. Some of this started during COVID that folks didn't do things because they didn't do things. You know, presidents turned over their tax records to the government or the media because they always had done it. Whether or not it was in the law, it always happened. Then Trump started doing not doing things that that uh, everyone else had done, 
nothing happened and people realized that they could get away with it. Um, and I okay. fear like that's the case with congressional review of our legislation. They've always had the authority to do it. They might have had the votes to overturn any number of bills, but they didn't do it because they didn't do it. Now that's that right. they're doing it, I think this is going to be a weekly occurrence. Uh, I think it's, then we're going to see a lot of it. Uh, the immediate issues that come to mind are uh, LGBTQ rights, abortion access, uh, but I think it's going to keep going from there. So there are a lot of possible issues on the chopping block, and I want residents to, to think about uh, the ultimate impact this could have on the District of, of Columbia and uh, our safety, uh, our, our health, uh, our home rule and constitutional rights. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be a significant chapter in our in our city's history. And I mean, there's two takes on how we move forward. Do we kind of tuck tail and start only passing bills that we think maybe won't poke their head up and get noticed by Congress? Or do we just keep doing what we've always done, pass the bills we think are right for people here and deal with the consequences? That's the million dollar question. Uh, I would say I, I need to talk to some more people before I come to a firm conclusion, because um we have to be strategic. We can't tuck our head in the sand and pretend that Congress in the immediate you know, future is not going to want to look for opportunities to intervene, to sort of uh, make headlines for their reelection issues. Um, and so, you know, but I was elected and my colleagues were elected to pass laws in the best interest of the people who elected us. And, and so this is a this is a difficult challenge. And I, I want our city to be more unified on this issue than we have been over the past couple of weeks. So this is a this is a wake up call for all of us that we have to work together differently. We have to uh, narrate what we're doing differently. And, and we have to think more strategically about the federal interference than we have in, in decades, if not in, in the entirety of home rule. Yeah, just in my own small world, uh, it was the anniversary of the Marion Barry statue going up in front of the Wilson building. And that popped up on my right. calendar. And I'm thinking, we're already getting a raft of garbage from the world, people who disagree with us. Do I put out this tweet? Do I celebrate mm. this thing that That's we right. normally would celebrate? And in the end, I ended up sending it out because we've got we've to be who we are. I mean, we That's can't right. just live under a you know, live under a cover and try to perceive what will work with middle America, that that's, that's right. not our role. That's not our job. You know, we have to let the yeah. critics come. But um, yeah. the, the other issue, and I don't know how we address this, is perception becomes reality. The conversation the nation is having about the criminal code has nothing to do with the content of the criminal code. The conversation the mayor is having, the president that's right about the criminal code have nothing to do with the reality of the criminal code. How do we deal with that? How do we, we can try our best to communicate more effectively, but it seems like an uphill battle when people are believing what they want to believe. Well, this is the reality we live in. And for people like myself and others who uh, are reform-minded, who believe that the way we have done many things uh, has not been in the best interests of, of our city or our country, we can't leave this fight empty-handed. We have to leave with the knowledge that we lost the narrative battle. And the narrative battle matters. 
substance of the bill matters, the narrative matters too. People in the District of Columbia do not feel safe. And so there are a lot of residents of our city who are saying, look, I'd love to have home rule, but I need to live when I walk out my door. And if the mayor and the president have contributed to a narrative that this bill, this criminal code bill makes us less safe, then we have lost, even if the substance of the bill is right. And this is an important lesson for us to learn and shame on us if we don't learn it and start figuring out how to talk to people differently about the work that we're doing and how it's going to make them less safe, not just how it's the good, right thing to do. And one, one last point just on this topic. Uh, the, the kind of latest news on this is that uh, Chairman Mendelssohn has written a letter to the Senate uh, basically withdrawing our transfer of the legislation to the Senate, which, if successful, would mean they would not need to vote on it and it would not get to the president's desk in its current iteration. I didn't know if you had any thought on that strategy, um, if you'd reached out to council members about it or uh, just basically your thoughts. It's brand new. Hey, I, I know you. It, it is breaking. I, I spoke uh, yesterday was Sunday. The chairman and I spent about an hour on the phone <laughs> yesterday uh, talking about this. And it, it doesn't look like even though I think and he thinks that we are right uh, that if if the council withdraws the bill, that the Senate should not vote on it. It looks like the parliamentarian of the Senate disagrees and that they will vote on it. So my concern now is we are withdrawing a bill and the Senate is still going to vote on it. It's still going to go to the president's desk. We have to ask ourselves strategically, what do we gain by withdrawing the bill and, and how do we Hold accountable, not just the people who are opponents to D.C., but our friends who are not in our corner as well. Um, and how do we um, strategically make sure our friends will step up with us in the future uh, if anybody sort of gets the, the signal that we're just going to withdraw the bills that Congress doesn't like? I don't want to send that signal to Congress and I don't want to send that signal to our allies. But but I do think the chairman is trying to be strategic here. So um, we've got to work together. This is a time where city leadership uh, needs to be more unified than we have been in recent years. So uh, so I'm going to play my part in making sure I'm, I'm working towards unity and, and talking really about our disagreements more in private than in public. Uh, but but it's also important to balance that with people understanding where I, somebody that people of the, the district elected, where I stand on issues. Right. And as I think you said earlier in the conversation, this is uncharted territory. So we all just, right. we're all making it up as we go. That's right. That's right. And hopefully getting smarter uh, by the hour. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Um, OK, well, let's pivot back to our uh, topic of conversation that we planned on talking about for all this breaking news, which is your new committee role. Um, talk to me about how it's a pretty big pivot. Uh, talk to me during the off season for folks who don't know, uh, the chairman reaches out to the council members um, who are eligible for committee chair uh, roles and asks them for a wish list. And uh cobbles together a committee structure that hopefully is responsive to as many of the first choices as people had. Uh, so talk to me a bit about the off-season, what you went to the chair with, and, and uh, why you're excited about the housing committee. 
Well, I, I spoke to the chairman in, in November uh, about the idea of, of chairing the housing committee. Um, one is, is a lived uh, perspective. I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian, as I've mentioned on this show before. The majority of my family has been priced out of this city, as I've mentioned before. And, 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 and many people that I, I interact with are struggling now uh, in the housing market, uh, whether they're trying to rent, uh, by my mentees are, are struggling. And so I, I bring a personal perspective here, but it's also a policy issue I care deeply about. Uh, so I asked the chairman for the opportunity to chair that the housing committee. Uh, I was very excited at the beginning of this year uh, when he proposed the, the structure uh, for the council for this council period. Now with me chairing the housing committee, I was surprised, uh, but very happy that he also included human services, which used to be its own committee into the housing committee. So now I, I have jurisdiction over housing and human services, which includes what, what most people uh, know from human services, homelessness. It's only one aspect of it, but homelessness and housing are very much connected. So bringing them together in one committee makes a lot of sense. I'm excited to move from contract procurement and building issues in my old committee to very people focused issues. <clears throat> what I told the chairman I would do if he put me uh, as, as chair of the housing committee, is take the committee into the community. Talk to people living in public housing, living in bad rental housing. Understand the experiences of people who don't necessarily come to the Wilson building. See what they're seeing and try to identify the solutions. So there are two things that people should expect to see from the housing committee. One, they should expect us to see the, they should expect to see us out in the community frequently. Two, they should see us solving problems. We're going to have some hard, difficult, uncomfortable conversations, not just with agencies, but with experts, not just with experts, but with residents with lived experience so that we can identify where the breakdowns in our systems are and plug those gaps. And I want to create a space for myself and my committee members to be vulnerable. We got to be able to admit we don't have all the answers. So we have to be able to ask dumb questions. We have to be able to rely on people who know more than us, because only if we're getting smarter are we making the best decisions in the best interests of residents. So I'm, I'm really excited. We're off to a very quick start. Now, I've already made some requests of the mayor and her budget proposal. Uh, we've already done a lot of tours, visits and meetings and hearings. And, and I'm excited about where, where the committee is going. And right out of the gate, one of the first big issues you had to deal with, uh, again, due to federal government intrusion, um, was uh, the clearing of McPherson Square. Uh, talk a little bit about that process, because you were out there multiple days directly interfacing with the people who were being displaced. Uh, yeah. and, and again, this is, the people like you, like you pointed out, this is new, the fact that the committee dealing with housing and the committee dealing with the absence of housing is the same committee, which, which right. it kind of, it, I feel like it should have always been that way. And it's great progress that it is. But talk a little it, bit it, about the square. It is. And I commend the chairman for combining the, the committees. So immediately after I was named chair of this committee, there was an announcement that McPherson Square, where there was a, a, a large homeless encampment, was going to be cleared by the National Park Service earlier than expected at the request of uh, the deputy mayor in the District of Columbia. And when I spoke to the deputy mayor, 
he talked to me about public safety concerns and that the majority of people they had tried to make contact with at McPherson Square uh, weren't responsive, weren't engaging with them. Well, that struck me as odd because I've been to homeless encampments before, talked to people, and I've never seen a high proportion of people refusing to engage with the government. So something seemed off. And I said, let me just go to McPherson, talk to people and see what my experience was. Well, first thing that struck me was I didn't have any trouble talking to folks. There was no one there that I tried to talk to who wouldn't engage me. <clears throat> Spoke to maybe a dozen people the first time I got there. The other thing that struck me was everyone I talked to had been approved for a housing voucher two to three years ago. And so it occurred to me that we are clearing encampments at the same time People living in the encampments have been approved for housing vouchers. They want to be in housing. We want them to be in housing. People working and living nearby want them to be in housing. So the issue is not that we're not clearing encampments quickly enough. The issue is that we have a log jam in our process. And unless and until we deal with that log jam, all we're doing with encampment clearings is moving the encampments from one place to another. So if we are about the business of solving and resolving encampments, we have to get people housed. So now I'm trying to focus uh, residents and our government on the log jams in our system so that we can get people housed. Uh, what I've asked the uh, city administrator for you know, with the, the majority of my colleagues is an emergency plan within three weeks to unclog these log jams. And I think if they are thinking creatively, they can come back to us with a plan. And so my hope and expectation at this point is that our agency officials and the administration will uh, will come forward with an emergency plan to get people into housing more quickly so that we can see an end to encampments, not just the shuffling them around. How does it work when you show up at an encampment? Just kind of walk me through that. I mean, you you just are walking from tent to tent, introducing yourself. I just that just got to be such a complicated, freighted, but probably greatly appreciated process. How, how did that go? Uh, it went really well. Um, I, I'm I'm comfortable in most spaces, um, and so I just decided to go. I went, parked my car, and spoke to the first person I, I saw, and tried not to make an assumption. I said, "Do you know anyone living here?" And he said, "I'm living here." And so we started talking. As I'm talking to the first person, someone else came back, came up to me. First three people I spoke to were like that. After that, I just started walking around and anybody that I saw or if I could see someone in a tent, I would just say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you for a couple of minutes? I'm council member Robert White. I'm trying to figure out what's happening and how I can help. Um, and so it, every time I went back after that, I was at McPherson three times in total. That was the experience each time, you know, and each time I would see some people that I saw them before. So I'd say hello to them and uh, and I would talk to new people. The third time I went, uh, there were more organizations there. And so I talked to people from the organizations as well to understand what they were doing there, what they were seeing. Uh, and it helped me understand the reality of the situation, which was different than the narrative that was being fed to me. And with that information, I worked to correct the public narrative because the narrative the public had about these encampments were they are dangerous, <clears throat> they are dirty, 
and people there are refusing to engage with the government for help. The reality was people are eager for help, but they are quickly losing faith that we will help because they are sitting on a housing voucher list for two, three years as they continue to live in encampment. And I don't think they take it. They don't they don't believe that they're really going to end up in housing one day. So, yes, they are going to stop responding to the government uh, until we start showing we can help people more quickly. How much of your time do you feel like you spend correcting narratives these days? I mean, between the criminal code, the encampment, it just seems like there's these myths that live out there. And instead of actually changing policy, you're trying to convince people that things are the way they are, not the way they think they are. That's that's a great question. Um, I spend a whole I never thought I never got any policy to get in the business of narratives. But as I, I, I critique my work nonstop and one of the things I realize is how much narrative matters to getting things done. It is probably the most critical component, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited about my current communications director, uh, Devin, who does a phenomenal job helping us navigate this. Um, but if you don't, if you lose the narrative battle, you have lost the war every day. So I do spend more and more time each week uh, on the narrative because that is the only way I, I think we really get things done. Now, speaking of vouchers, um, Years ago, I watched Mayor Fenty used to do a cap stat sessions where he sat down with his cabinet members and he grilled them on the details of policy. And he asked them, what are the number of vouchers and what is the waiting list and how many vouchers are we giving out each year? And it was like a 85 year waiting list at the rate they were yeah. clearing vouchers. That was 2007, 2008. Here we are. It, it's how are we going to get past this issue of there are people who need housing, there's housing that's available, and there's this backlog of vouchers that makes yeah. people cynical about the fact the government ever helping them. How, how are we going to break this lock, Jim? Um, with the right leadership vision, um, sometimes instead of just passing more laws, you have to play the role of working to diagnose the problem and helping shed light on the path forward. So what I'm doing on homelessness now is not looking for legislation that I can pass. It is going deep into the system, including lived experiences, to understand where things are getting stuck and then working to get them unstuck there. So um, that that is it, these are not impossible problems to solve. But so many people are overwhelmed by the things that are coming at them day after day after day that they can't or don't pull back to say, all right, <laughs> how can we actually resolve this problem so that we're not just continually trying to uh, um, triage, but that we have really fixed the system so that the system itself works. Uh, that's the really the approach I'm trying to take to homelessness. That's the approach that I'm working to take uh, to housing more, more generally. And we just finished up performance oversight, uh, your first performance oversight season in your new committee role. Did you find willing partners among the agency heads? I do think that there are uh, there there are willing partners among agency heads. Uh, not everybody is as willing as the next at this point, 
Uh, I think if I'm honest, you know, some people are nervous about being under my committee chairmanship. There's always been a narrative that I used to run from, but now I don't. Well, you know, he's doing X or Y because he wants to be mayor. I used to let that stymie me. I don't anymore. I just do my work. I ran for mayor, so now I don't even have to worry about that. I just focus more on my work. And there are agency directors who feel uh, like we're, we're working so hard and that should be enough. So you should go easy on us. And, and I believe that we have to hold each other accountable, that we have to push each other. Uh, so um, I, I think that mostly willing partners, uh, I think we are still building relationships and I'm working to make sure there's a relationship of, of trust and transparency. I want the agencies that I work with to trust that I'm trying to get to the right thing. And, and I want them to be a part of it. I want me to be a part of it. Um, the transparency is, is, is with both of us. You know, if I see an issue, I'm going to tell you, but where you see issues, I need you to tell me as well, because I have no problem with problems. I have no problem if you don't yet have the answer, but I do have a problem if you're hiding the ball or hiding information. So, you know, if we are transparent, if we're working together, even where we disagree, I think we're going to make a lot of progress. And I'm excited about uh, about the agencies under the jurisdiction of our committee. There's so much good being done there. There's so much potential uh, yet to be uncovered. And, you know, my role is only one. So, you know, if we're all playing our roles and doing our best at it, we're going to move the ball forward. But I, I don't I don't want to chair a committee for two years or four years and have things be in the same place. So I, I really am focused on what can we get done that's going to help people. And also, I mean, performance oversight season, people are, are nervous and don't like being under the magnifying glass. It's an opportunity to shine. If yeah. you're doing great, I mean, it's an opportunity to bask in the sunlight and take a victory lap. That's I mean, right. That, a better way to look at it, I feel like, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge yeah. to succeed. And there'll always be questions, but right. um, we, I looked it up going back all the way to 2021, talked about a bill you had about um, converting office buildings to residential. Lo and behold, in this intervening two years, this has become quite trendy. Um, and today in uh, Axios, in their daily newsletter, it is the lead story is the wow. number of hundreds of units that are now queued up for a conversion, recognizing like we talked yeah. about on the show a few episodes ago, it's not easy and architecturally, and there's a lot of other complications. That's right. But, uh, so is, is this something that the committee is going to be uh, leaning into once again? Oh, yes. Uh, the bill I introduced that was uh, pushed the city to convert uh, older office buildings into housing, I introduced it in 2015 or 2016, was met with a lot of laughter. Um, and um, I'm excited to see the mayor and other folks on board now. I'm game for getting getting this done. Uh, you know, this, this is the recipe for a good partnership. Uh, this is not um, a, a panacea. It's not going to solve the housing crisis or the economic, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a crisis, but problem we have downtown. But it is a piece of the puzzle. And um, if we can bring residents, people living downtown in D.C., there's an exciting next chapter. If we keep trying to stay married to what downtown was four years ago, it's going to die. 
But if we can see the next chapter, we bring people downtown so that there's 24-7 life and spending downtown. Uh, I think the next chapter is, is very exciting. But we, we've got to we've got to get everybody on board and we've got to keep moving in this direction. So this is a place that the mayor and I can work very closely together. And I'm, I've spoken to her about it. I'm excited about it. And this is one of the cases where something good came from something bad that, you know, with That's everyone right. telecommuting and, and the downtown being somewhat deserted we're going to be better served long after, you know, fingers crossed COVID is just a memory uh, having a vibrant, you know, we already had one Renaissance at downtown on the edges, yes. but the core right. remained resistant to residential. And if we yes. get the whole entirety of the downtown to be truly mixed use, uh, that will benefit us forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and we'll be a leader in the country because all the downtowns are facing this issue. And, uh, you know, what you have to do as a leader is take a challenge and see it as an opportunity and, and go seize that opportunity. We have an opportunity here. Uh, now, you brought up another topic earlier uh, in terms of the congressional meddling uh, with the Hyde Act. Um, now, here's another uh, topic where there's a bit of disagreement. And it's and it shows watch watch what you wish for because on the criminal code the mayor and the Congress agree and the chairman disagrees on the Hyde Act the mayor and Congress disagree and the chairman in the past had had uh, sort of been happy that Congress might block a Hyde Act revision. I haven't seen your feelings on the Hyde Act and maybe you don't. You're not ready to disclose them or you're still. I, I think I think, I think we're breaking up, Josh. I think we're breaking up. So. The Hyde Act, uh, interesting. I when I was uh, still a staffer for uh, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, um, one of the things I, I did in my portfolio was the uh, the DC aspect of the Government and Oversight uh, Reform Committee, which had jurisdiction over DC issues. Um, I worked on a hearing on the Federal Hyde Act was many many years ago, so I am abundantly aware of it uh, and its opponents. There, there are two things here. I am. Uh, I, I don't believe that modest increases in the Hyde Act um, um, negatively impact the, the the views and beauties that people are working to preserve. Um, I also recognize that we still have a lot of room to build under the local Hyde Act. A lot of people don't realize there is a DC Hyde Act, and most parts of the city are not built to the the locally regulated heights. So, am I open to modest increases in in the the federal Hyde Act? Y yes, I am, especially if it's going to bring more housing, particularly for people who are struggling to afford housing in the district. Um, and uh, and I think we can do that in a way that still protects the federal interests and the interests of those who want to preserve uh, certain, you know, vistas, views, and, and, and other sort of aesthetic features of the district. I don't think those uh, are misaligned or, or in opposition to each other. But what about the argument that where the extra height is wanted is not the map of where the height is wanted and the map of where housing is needed, affordable housing is most needed, those two maps are two different maps. They, they were, but now that we're talking about adding residential downtown, uh, I think that 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 we have to take a new look at that. There, there are also um, 
there are parts of the city, a lot of people point to Ward 8, or at least they have historically as a place where we might want to build higher because it's on the outskirts. It doesn't interrupt the views of, of uh, the Capitol. What I don't know at this point is how residents of Ward 8 feel about that. So that that's something I would want to understand better. Okay, we've talked about some housing committee priorities, things that I had on my radar screen. What What is on your radar screen? What am I missing? What are specific uh, legislative or uh, sub-elements uh, uh, of housing that you want to tackle? Um, a couple things on the housing. One, the state of uh, public housing in the district is is not good. It, it is bad. Um, not every not every unit, not every building is bad, but on the whole, we are not we have not been doing a good job with public housing for years. Um, we have more units offline because they are uninhabitable than any um, public housing agency in the country. There are a lot of people who need those units. So one of the things I'm trying to do is accelerate the repair and maintenance of public housing. I've asked the mayor for uh, to include in her budget proposal $100 million a year for the next five years so we can get more public housing back online and fix the issues that people are living with now. Um, I've also, uh, the, the other major thing which has is has to do with homelessness. It also has to do with public safety is I'm trying to open up the pipeline of mental health professionals in the district. We have been working with the University of the District of Columbia to create a free degree, a master's degree in counseling or social work for all district residents or district employees because there are so many more mental health needs than there are practitioners and professionals. So again, looking at where the breakdowns in the pipeline are, we, we have a pipeline issue. So I'm, I'm trying to open up the pipeline of mental health professionals that is desperately needed in, in dealing with homelessness and, and unclogging that backlog. It's desperately needed in the public safety realm where there's so many people, especially young people, dealing with crippling trauma in our city that's perpetuating this cycle of violence. So those two things are the biggest that I'm working on uh, right now. There are a lot of other very important, but but I would say smaller bills that I'm working on to retain more teachers, to change the examination for uh, social workers. Uh, a lot of really interesting and critical things coming out of my office this year. What me and my staff try to be attentive to are one, getting things done. We gotta be getting things done for residents. Two, what are, what are the issues or things that are gonna have the biggest impact to help people's everyday lives? And by using those two filters, we are really starting to hone in on, I think some of the most important issues to DC residents. Uh, well, I, what's interesting to me is your priorities are seem extremely rational and deeply unsexy. Showing up <laughs> when you're chairing the housing committee, putting up a brand new building, cutting a ribbon. That seems to be what folks are into in terms of housing priorities. But, uh, you know, you, uh, repairing broken public housing, breathtakingly, critically important, but profoundly unsexy. So how are you going to get around that? 
Back to the narrative. I need to explain to people what I'm doing in a way that they know why it matters to them. So a bill to create a free uh, master's program uh, is sexy to a few people who want to participate in that master's program. But as people understand the impact that mental health has on public safety and on encampments that that a lot of people want to see gone, then they start to understand why it matters to them. So it is talking to people in a language that that they speak and and framed by the issues that they care about. Yeah, it's where the rubber hits the road. You know, it's it's not all about cranes and cranes and enormous scissors for for ribbon cutting. That's right. More of the same is going to get us more of the same. So we've got to do some things a little differently, but but trying to be smart enough to talk about it in a way that makes sense to people. True, true. Um, Okay, we're now hopefully people are in a little better mood. We kind of stopped doing the fun round at the end for a couple of years during COVID. (laughs) Inappropriate, but can hit you with a couple fun, silly questions at the end. Sure. Uh, we did this once before where I asked you what, uh, which of your colleagues you would pick for certain tasks. Um, and I have a new list of tasks and you have a new list of colleagues. Um, so although you can, you can uh, call on former colleagues if you think it's a better fit or. All right. Which uh, of your colleagues past or present would you want to go on a camping trip with? On a camping trip? Uh, I'm going to say Matt Fruman. Uh, Matt's a smart guy. He's going to know how everything works and he's going to explain to me in detail how it works. So I'm going to lead that trip a lot smarter, uh, than I, than I came. So yeah, I'm I'm going camping with camping with Matt Fruman. Okay. Um, and I'm showing my age by phrasing the question this way, but whose Rolodex would you want to steal? What council members (laughs) contacts, uh, would would you uh, most envy or want to borrow? I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the chairman's uh, Men, uh, Phil Mendelson's contacts because this this guy knows a lot of of people and he seems to have more time in the day than the rest of us uh, because he is communicating with with these people uh, along the way. So I'm I, I'm absolutely taking uh, Phil Mendelson's Rolodex because uh, I, I need to know I need to know and find the people with the answers. That makes sense. Um, okay. Who's this is a, an assumption that's false. If all the council members wrote poetry, whose poetry would you want to read? <laughs> um, I want to read uh, Brianna Nadeau's poetry because I think it'll have uh, more more curse words and inappropriate content than anybody else's. And I see that as a plus, not a minus. OK, uh, who would you pick to mediate a dispute? Uh, Janice Lewis-George, because what I think she's going to do is she's going to say, fight it out. (laughs) If you you want a fun mediation, I think she's going to give it to you. There'd be good spirit there. Uh, And the last one, if you were on an 800 call with customer service and they were giving you a hard time and you needed to bring someone on your side to help you win that battle, with the cable company or Lord knows who, who would, who yeah. would you bring to that fight? I'm, I'm bringing Trayon White. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think he's going to keep pushing until they, somebody changes the answer. I need change. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing the council member Trayon White onto that call for me. All right. 
All right. Uh, that is great. I really appreciate you uh, working through that mental exercise with me and, and getting a bit yeah. of a letter. Uh, well, sadly, we're, we're out of time. We're over time, but we had a lot to talk about today. Uh, thank you so much for coming back uh, on the show. I'm uh, looking forward to number 10. Interview yes. number 10 coming our way at some point. Uh, listeners, uh, thank you very much. Uh, please remember to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search under Hearing the Council. Thank you again for joining us, listeners. Tune in next time. We're on DC Radio 96.3 on your FM HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you, Council Member. Take care. Thank you, Josh. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.